Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today we're talking about sections 89 through 92, and I don't have a lot to say about sections 92 and 91. 92 is an order for Frederick G. Williams to be accepted into the United Order. Section 91 tells Joseph Smith that he doesn't need to translate the Apocrypha because parts of it can be useful if you have the spirit, but otherwise it's not really that useful. So then we go to section 89. Let's jump to 89. The word of wisdom, very familiar to members of the church. And one thing that we're actually known for in the broader society, a lot of people outside of the church recognize us as people who don't drink, smoke, you know, do tobacco, drugs, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, fascinating words here at the beginning. A principle with a promise adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints who are or can be called saints. So I don't know if that's like very complimentary, but God is saying that this one's easy, folks. This one should be easy. And uh, it can be, I think, pretty easy if we take it right. But then interestingly, in the next verse, verse four, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarn you by giving unto you the word of wisdom. So God is talking about the fact that there are going to be conspiring men. Now, we knew that in the last days, right? I mean, the Gideon and Ravers, secret combinations are going to flourish again. I think we can probably take that as a given. Paul warned about this in Ephesians, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against wickedness in high places. So anyway... This is part of it. Uh, Even in something as simple as health issues, we see the impact of conspiring men. And why do they conspire? Well, for gain, right? For money, which is a big motivation for a lot of evil. As we read in the scripture, the love of money is the root of evil. So this is what happens when it comes to food and health as well. And it's, we're in an interesting time, right? Because there are a million voices out there telling us that they want us to be healthy and here's, here it is or there it is and here's what to do and here's how to eat. I think some of us may have thought that the conspiring men were the tobacco executives that lied about nicotine and so on. And I think that they did fall into that category, but I don't think it stopped there. And we don't have to go very far to see that. You've probably seen those candy displays or, you know, I, I remember seeing a pack of gummy bears that had you know, big words on the front that said, no fat. And I thought, you know, the marketing person who put those words on that gummy bear package, I don't think was really concerned about my health. (laughs) I think they wanted me to think they were concerned about my health. But uh, okay, no fat and all that sugar. So um, you can see it everywhere. Over the years, our family has shared a lot of books and um, documentaries that are about food and food sourcing and health. One of those books was Salt, Sugar, and Fats. And I read that several years ago. And I was thinking about it the other day, remembering a story about Jeffrey Dunn that's told in that book. Jeffrey Dunn was a Coca-Cola executive who had risen up pretty high in the ranks, but was married to a woman who was really conscious of health and good nutrition. So he actually is the one who introduced to Coke the idea of bottling water and he created that product Dasani, which is a Coke product, but a, you know, a healthier choice than soda. So that was because of Jeffrey Dunn. But also, he was asked to go and kind of do a scope out trip to Brazil. They were considering bottling a smaller bottle, a six to seven ounce 
bottle of Coke that could be sold for a pretty low price and marketed to some of the, the people there in Brazil. And when he went down there, he was struck by the great needs and, you know, the, some of the extreme poverty of the people. And when he went back to Coke, he said, you know, these people need a lot of things, but one thing they don't need is a bottle of Coke. And he made his feelings known about that, that this was not really going to help. And it was just, again, to make more money for the company. So I get that companies are about making money, and I don't have a problem with that. But when it comes to some products that can really impact health and and so on, that motive is also there. He ended up getting booted out of Coke because he kept kind of moving in that direction of trying to make things more healthy or using that as a parameter for some of their decisions. And he kind of made a speech to that effect when before he left. Interestingly, he went to another company, Bolt House Farms, and helped them develop and market snack packs of baby carrots. So they, you know, smaller bags of baby carrots that could be a healthy snack. And he found a lot more satisfaction in that and felt felt more comfortable with that. So I thought that was kind of an interesting story about, again, just showing that, you know, that we have to be proactive in our own regulation of our health and well-being and not just assume that everybody out there who is trying to tell us that this food or that food is healthy or, or good for us, you know, they don't necessarily have our, our best well-being as their goal. And I do think that the Lord expects us to be proactive about our own health and well-being. I mean, he has told us that the body is the temple of our spirits. So we have a responsibility to take care of of our temples, our our bodies as we go forward. And he has mentioned, we talked about this a while ago in section 58, that we should not be commanded in all things, that the Lord doesn't want slothful servants, but he wants people who are anxiously engaged in finding ways forward. So I think this is another area where we can recognize that God isn't going to make a list of all the things that are good for us or bad for us. He gives us some really good guidelines here in section 89. But I don't think we need a revelation to tell us that monster drinks probably aren't very healthy for us or excessive consumption of anything, particularly sweets or fast foods and things like that. Some of you will have seen uh, supersize me. Anyway, I mean, I think we can be cautious about that. Another little pet peeve of mine when my kids were young, anyway, I wanted to make sure that they didn't ever take their turn at blessing the refreshments and say things, sort of unthinking things like, you know, bless the refreshments that they can nourish and strengthen our bodies. <laughs> I mean, not to condemn anybody who said that because we get kind of caught in our language sometimes and those things can come out. But I wanted my kids to be more thoughtful about that and realize that a blessing over the refreshments probably isn't going to work to just take the calories out. So, you know, you can express thanks for those who prepared or brought the snacks. You can talk about, you know, blessings that we'll enjoy them as we fellowship one with another and, you know, enjoy that visit or whatever. But let's be a little conscious about that. Let's let's think about the fact that some things don't really nourish and strengthen our bodies. That doesn't mean we can't occasionally enjoy them if we use some temperance and moderation, which again is something that we shouldn't have to be commanded in all things. We should be able to use some sense and wisdom there. Now, another topic in the Word of Wisdom that sometimes we discuss and maybe we don't discuss very much is this idea of eating meat sparingly. The Revelation says that we really should only eat those things in times of famine or in the winter when other things aren't available, but we live in a time when we can have fresh fruits and vegetables all year round that are 
shipped in from warmer climates. So we don't really have times of the winter that is being talked of here where things don't grow and we can't get anything that's freshly grown. But And we certainly aren't in a position of famine. So it's an interesting idea to look at this, I think, a little more closely. I've heard it said by many people that it's kind of ironic that we really focus on things like alcohol and tobacco and coffee and tea, but we skip over this part about eating meat sparingly. And maybe part of it is because we think we are eating meat sparingly already. I think that was my situation. I didn't think I was eating a ton of meat. I don't think I've ever felt like that was a big, you know, the biggest part of our diet. And yet, my perspective really changed on this about 15 years ago. I was in a motorcycle accident, and I landed on the street on my right shoulder and did some real damage. The top of the humerus broke off and broke into five pieces. So it was a really bad break, and it took a year of massive uh, therapy. And even after that, I had to have some surgery to do some mechanical reconstruction and change things so that my arm could work again. So it was a pretty long drawn out ordeal. And I talked to a lot of physical therapists in that time. One was a young man who had interned with a doctor who was an orthopedic surgeon in Park City. You know, they have some really great orthos over there because people come down those mountains skiing or biking and sometimes they (laughs) break stuff on the way down. So he had a thriving practice there. He had actually, the orthopedic surgeon had done surgery on Tiger Woods in the past. At any rate, he did a lot of knee replacements and he got kind of frustrated by that because he saw younger and younger people coming in to get knee replacements. And he thought, you know, joints should last longer than this. So he did some research and eventually came up with this handout. And when people came for a consult on knee replacements, he would hand them this paper and say, eat like this for six months, and then I'll talk to you. So the people who did that and then came back to see him after eating that way, only 40% of them needed knee replacements. So just changing their diet, according to his recommendations, had made an enormous change and averted surgery for a pretty serious surgery of knee replacement. So anyway, of course, I was interested in what was on that page. And the young physical therapist told me, well, it was the China study. And he gave me a little sketch of that. So anyway, I went and looked and the China study is a pretty big book. And I decided to read a shorter version of it. So I bought a book called Eat to Live by Dr. Joel Furman that is based on the China study, but was a quicker read. Now the China study is the most comprehensive nutritional study ever done to this point. And it was pretty fascinating. Anyway, I was reading this book on a road trip that Chris and I were doing to Santa Fe for a conference that we were attending there. And I ended up reading almost the whole book out loud to Chris because it was so interesting to me and and surprising. I mean, this was 15 years ago, I think now maybe we've heard more about these things, but it really talked about the impact on health of different kinds of diets. And one of the basic conclusions was that countries that eat more animal-based food and eat a lot of meat and animal products end up having much higher death rates from heart disease and cancer. And we know that heart disease is the number one killer of Americans. So uh, clearly we are one of those industrialized countries that eats a lot of animal products and that less developed countries, less industrialized countries that eat much more vegetable consumption or, or that's a bigger percentage of their diet or maybe even their whole diet have very, very low rates, almost negligible rates of heart disease and cancers. So he makes some pretty compelling arguments about this. And, the, you know, the book goes on, it's full of really interesting data. And I found it quite an interesting read. 
He's written a book since then, actually, called um, Ending Heart Disease, or The End of Heart Disease, something like that, also by Joel Furman. Anyway, I think that what really was astonishing to me was that it changed my perspective. I thought we were eating meat sparingly. And after reading this book, I thought, you know, we could be a lot more careful about our consumption of meat and animal products, and we could reduce that significantly, which we've done. And we saw resulting benefits in our blood tests and so on as the years have passed on. Of course, we sent out a copy of that book to all of our children, and many of them have made some adjustments in their diets as well and seen some real benefits from that. Chris would refer to us not as vegetarian, but as like flexitarian, because we don't subscribe to 100% vegan or vegetarian diet, but we have cut down significantly on our consumption of meat. And that has been a good change for us. I found a video on YouTube that I really enjoyed, and I think it would be a great thing to add that to the study of Section 89. It was called Return to Sparingly. And some Latter-day Saints put this together. It has some nice music in the background, and then it just shows one quote after another of church leaders from our church, past and some more recent, that have made statements about eating meat sparingly. And I found it really instructive. There was one interesting quote by Bruce R. McConkie that I'll share from The Millennial Messiah, a book that he wrote, that says, Man and all forms of life will be vegetarians in the coming day. He's talking about the millennium, right? The eating of meat will cease because, for one thing, death as we know it ceases. There will be no shedding of blood. So that's an interesting reminder that during the millennium, we'll all be completely vegetarian. And that makes sense, because if a lion is lying down with a lamb, the lion's not eating the lamb, right? So that makes actually really good sense. So I'd encourage you to watch that video, Return to Sparingly, on YouTube with your families or friends, and and think about it. Of course, in all things, we need to be thoughtful and prayerful. People have different health issues and and requirements, and and the Lord wants us to be wise, to to ponder things out, and to make good decisions. I love this statement by Gordon B. Hinckley, given in October Conference of 1993 in a speech called My Testimony. President Hinckley said, I thank the Lord for a testimony of the word of wisdom. I wish we lived it more fully. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, is finding ways to live it more fully, more completely. So going on with President Hinckley, I wish we lived it more fully, but even though we do not, the Lord pours out his blessings upon those who try. That's a wonderful statement that if we have an honest heart and we are honestly trying to live the word of wisdom and the other commandments, the Lord honors our efforts and helps us line upon line, precept upon precept, having better understanding and instruction on how to live those commandments more fully. But he honors us for being in that path of obedience rather than rebellion. As you know, rebellion is the big problem with God, knowing things and then refusing to do them just because we think we know better or we don't want to be bothered. That's the problem. Now, I have to read this beautiful promise from section 89 because this is a principle with a promise and this promise is beautiful. All saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. So anytime the Lord is talking about the fact that we can have greater knowledge and greater wisdom, I'm always so interested in that. I really do desire to increase in understanding and think more like God thinks. So obedience to all the commandments allows us to get those blessings, and it's specifically stated in a beautiful way here in section 89. 
And then this wonderful promise, even hidden treasures, that I'm going to come back to in a minute. And going on, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. That's just beautiful. Now, let me go back to this idea of hidden treasures and share with you something that connected with me when I was reading some research when I was still teaching at BYU. So this is from a book called The Price of Motherhood that I read many years ago, and it had all kinds of fascinating data in it, and here were some of those data. It was talking about what happens for children when women have a say-so over how money is spent in the family budget. And this research has been done on five continents, so it's pretty extensive research that shows that when women have a say-so over money, or if it's money that they earn themselves so they have control over it, that children are benefited. Now, hang on here. This is not saying that that men don't love their children, but there is a really fascinating tie-in with what we're talking about today. So some of the just examples that they gave was that in Brazil, $1 in the hands of a Brazilian woman had the same effect on child survival as $18 in the hands of a man. Now, think about that. $1 in the hands of a woman had the same effect on child survival as $18 in the hands of the man. In Guatemala, they also reported that the additional $11.40 per month in a mother's hands would achieve the same weight gain in a young child as an additional $166 if earned by the father. Let me say that again. $11.40 in the hands of the mother would achieve the same weight gain in a young child as $166 in the hands of the father. Now, what is going on here? They went on, they had many, many examples of things like this. Finding is on five continents, as I said. So what is going on? And it was pretty simple because they found again and again that fathers spent a great deal of the household money or his own earnings on alcohol and tobacco. Those were the top two expenditures where money went instead of for nutritious food or medical attention for the child or even educational supplies. In addition to alcohol and tobacco, which were the top two, also money was sometimes spent on other women, gambling status possessions. So look at the picture that I saw. I came home that day and we still had these two teenage boys at home. So when Chris and I and the kids were discussing things at the dinner table, I brought this up and I said, look, Think about this for a second. If you obey the word of wisdom, that means you're not going to spend any of the household money on alcohol and tobacco. And if you obey other basic commandments, you don't gamble, you don't commit adultery, so you're not spending money on other women. And then all you have to worry about are the status possessions. So make sure that as the prophets have taught us for years, as God clearly wants, husbands and wives should counsel together over everything, right? But including the budget. So before you want to go buy that fancy car or that boat or vacation property or whatever, make sure you consult with your wife and counsel together to see if the kids have needs, if they need braces or medical attention or something for their schooling or whatever. And if you counsel with your wives about those things and all matters of household direction, then your children will be blessed above most of the children on this planet. And what really floored me was that 
in all the years that I have lived, that, you know, I grew up in this church, I have never heard that one of the blessings of obeying the word of wisdom was that our children would be privileged and have more resources that would go toward their well-being and their development in healthy ways, rather than to things like alcohol and tobacco. Brothers and sisters, that is a hidden treasure to me. And it really, it really helped me understand that something that I very powerfully believe now, which is that there are embedded blessings in every one of the commandments of our Heavenly Father. Meaning that some are clear principles with the promise. You know, you obey the word wisdom, you have greater health. And those things are kind of ratified by statistics that show that members of our church tend to be healthier in some areas than other people because we don't smoke and drink and other things. But anyway, I had never even heard a whisper of this connection, that if we're not spending money on alcohol and tobacco, our children, and it's obvious when you think about it, that our children are more greatly blessed because there are funds to go for the things that the family needs, and particularly that the children need to grow and develop in healthy ways. What an incredible blessing. This is a hidden treasure. I believe there are hidden treasures to every commandment. I think we're going to get on the other side of the veil and we're going to look back with astonishment and realize that, oh my goodness, because I obeyed that commandment. Look at the blessings that came that I wasn't even aware of that, that were associated with my, you know, going to church, fulfilling my callings, being modest, being honest you know, doing the right things, following the commandments, following the law of chastity, there will be just so many blessings that we're going to see that we had no idea were coming into our lives because of obedience. And these are hidden treasures. Brothers and sisters, I testify of those hidden treasures. I know that we will receive them and be greatly blessed. And someday our eyes will be open and we'll see exactly how the Lord kept his promises to us day to day as we walked faithfully through this life. So grateful for that. So now, different topic. I'm going to tell you another story that happened to me personally. We had just moved to Utah a little while before, and it was challenging. There were a lot of things going on when we moved to Utah. Just really busy stage for our family. I started this PhD program. We were building a house. Anyway, there were lots of things going on. And I remember that I was concerned about a particular situation that was becoming a trial and had been a trial and looked like it was going to be a trial for a while. And Here's the amazing thing is that I don't even remember what the trial was. I mean, I could make a guess because I know there were some challenging things. But I don't remember specifically what it was that I was concerned about at this time. When I went on a walk, we have a trail behind our house. And many people use it to walk and bike. And it's, it's great. And I was on that trail. And I was thinking about this trial. And I was pondering and kind of praying about it in sort of a casual way as I walked. But I was reaching out towards my Heavenly Father and talking about this concern. And as I walked, this verse of scripture came into my head. And it was a familiar verse. I think most of us are familiar with it. It said, search diligently, pray always and be believing, and all things shall work together for thy good. Now, that was a part of the verse that I remembered. And I'm embarrassed to say that my first response to having that scripture come into my mind was something like, really? Like, seriously, all things? Like, you're telling me that this trial can be for my good? I'm hoping to just survive this trial, and you're saying it can be for my good? So I have to admit, I was kind of skeptical and a little incredulous at this thought that God is promising that all things can work together for our good. And shame on me for it. The, the next thought that came into my head was a rebuke. And I was duly chastened. The thought was, 
either it's the truth or God's a liar. Choose one. Wow. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I made that choice a long time ago. I know that God's not a liar. And here I was being skeptical about his promised blessings, that if I search, pray, walk uprightly, Remember the covenant and believe, because that's the rest of the verse, which we can read. I couldn't remember where that verse was. I knew it was in the Doctrine and Covenants, but I couldn't have told you section and verse. So when I got home, I looked it up, and there it was, section 90, verse 24. So this is our next section that we're talking about. And the whole verse reads like this. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing. And all things shall work together for your good, if you walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. So I remember this section and verse now, and I have quoted this often since that time as part of my testimony that God does keep his promises, and he is not a God of lies. He is a God of truth. He cannot lie. He does not lie. He will not lie. Our Heavenly Father is full of truth full of light, full of goodness. And when he makes a promise, he keeps it. So here I was in a trial that I currently cannot remember and may never remember again, and that's all to the good. But I will never forget the lesson that if I continue to be a seeker of truth and I search diligently, and as a part of that search, I pray to my Heavenly Father for guidance and help and direction, illumination. If I walk uprightly, And remember my covenants, which does not say that I have to be perfect or finished in this journey, but that I am diligently seeking to live my covenants better and better as I learn and grow. And the one that I skipped is the hardest one, which is be believing. It's really easy for us to forget to believe sometimes. You know, we we have faith. We believe in the Book of Mormon. We believe in Joseph Smith as the prophet of the Restoration. We believe in our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. We believe the gospel is true. We believe the church is God's kingdom on earth. But then when we have worries, when we have trials, sometimes we forget to believe that God can consecrate all of our afflictions for our good. That if we continue to search, pray, walk uprightly, remember our covenants, and believe that all things shall work together for our good. Everything will turn out well. You know that little joke statement, but it's not really a joke about everything will be all right in the end. If everything isn't all right, it's not the end. And that's what God is telling us, that everything will be all right in the end for the righteous. This is a promise for his righteous, faithful saints. If we who want to be a part of Zion believe in his promises, we really get the message to stop worrying. And this has really been life-changing for me. I don't think I was a giant worrier before, but I certainly had my moments. And more and more, as life went on with incidents like this one, I've been convinced that God doesn't want his people to worry. We don't need to worry about things because we know how this ends. Now, we don't know every step of the plan along the way, and that's why we stretch our faith. And that's what I realized. I had this faith, but I wasn't stretching it over this particular concern, and I needed to. I needed to stretch my faith over this problem and not just keep my faith compartmentalized about, you know, things of of the gospel or of the spirit, but to, 
to use it in my life to say that then I know that if I am doing the right thing and trying to be diligent in searching, praying, walking uprightly, etc., I'm going to believe, I'm going to stretch my faith over this problem, over this concern, and I'm going to drop my worry. We have all heard that fear and faith cannot coexist. And that is really accurate. I've found that to be true in my own life again and again, seen it in the lives of others, that we can drop our fear and stretch our faith over whatever that concern is and know that God is mindful of us. That doesn't mean there won't be troubles. That doesn't mean every problem is resolved as quickly as we would like or in exactly the way we would like. But God keeps his promises. Christ is the victory. Light banishes dark. Good will triumph over evil. All we need to do is to continue to choose Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer through our actions, through our obedience, through living our lives the way that he asks us to, and the promises are sure. Since that time, this has been a repeated message for me in firesides or presentations that I do or when I speak to people. I've talked a lot about this because there are a lot of things in this life that give us concern. And understandably so. There are all kinds of trials and problems that can afflict us. Some of them are incidental to life on a celestial planet and just our temporal lives and health and whatever. And some of them are more of a relational or spiritual kind of concern. And in any case, the Lord makes his promise sure. And what I have seen more and more is that God will make all things that are unfair on this planet fair. In fact, there is a nice statement in Preach My Gospel that says that everything that is unfair in this life will be made fair through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Obviously, that isn't all going to happen on this planet. I mean, Joseph Smith's life wasn't fair. He struggled continually, had all kinds of hardships, and Emma as well, and their family, and ended up dying an ignominious death at age 38 at the hands of a raging mob, even though he was himself and his brother innocent. So, you know, life isn't fair on this planet necessarily, and God doesn't guarantee that, but he does guarantee that in the day of restoration that all things will be made fair. For instance, in Alma 41, verse 2, Alma talking to his son Corianton says, the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God, that all things should be restored to their proper order. And I believe that this is part of that restoration, that things will be made fair. They'll go from being unfair or unjust on this planet to being fair and just in the final day. Also, there are other beautiful promises made. In fact, one of the speeches of Joseph Worthlin, who was an apostle years ago, talked about what he calls the law of compensation. And I think that that's another way of describing what I'm talking about here, this restoration or compensation that will come to the righteous for the things which we have suffered that have been unfair or unjust on this planet. And that is a promise we can take to the bank. The Lord's not kidding. He's going to keep his promises. Things will be right. Of course, there's the beautiful promise in Revelations chapter 21, where it tells us that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And he's talking about the righteous. He's talking about his saints, those who become a part of Zion. And there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. So this day is coming where our tears are dried and our wounds are healed and our hearts are comforted and our sorrow is replaced with rejoicing. Now God talks about how he measures things and I think it's beautiful to contemplate. This is from Luke chapter 6 verse 38 where God is talking about if we give it will be given to us again and then he tells us how he measures. He says good measure 
pressed down and shaken together and running over. Think how beautiful that is. You know, anybody who bakes or something sometimes finds it in a recipe, it'll say, you know, a scant teaspoon, meaning, you know, don't fill it up all the way. But the Lord doesn't have any scant measurements in the way that he restores and replenishes and compensates. He's going to give us good measure, pressed down, shaken together, getting all those air pockets out and running over. That's how the Lord will compensate and bless his people who have put him first, who have trusted in his promises and made sacrifices and obedience, knowing that that promised day of restoration will come. Now, this next quote comes from a book that I read when first when I was like 16. I've reread it a couple of times since then. It's a beautiful book called Gentian Hill by an English author called Elizabeth Gouge. And she tells a wonderful story about you know, a few characters that come together in England during the time where Admiral Lord Nelson was battling in those sea battles. And these people are in England at that time, and their lives come together and are entwined in some beautiful ways. And each of them has suffered in their various journeys. But some wonderful things come from their connection and the relationships that grow. Anyway, one of the characters is a doctor who just wanted to marry and have a family, really wanted to have a family to love, but he was never married because they mentioned almost in passing that he was a hunchback. And that doesn't really figure very largely into his day-to-day life because he's become a doctor, he's much loved by his community, he gives so much service, they all know him to be a wonderful man. But this was a heartache in his life that he had never been able to marry or have children. And one of the other characters that comes into his life is a young adolescent boy who's lost his parents and has gone through difficulty and becomes really injured and the doctor nurses him back to health and he keeps him in his home for a while and when he's well enough he's at the dinner table and the doctor finally is trying to find out if he has a family somewhere and as he asks the boy says that he's an orphan and the doctor you know almost with bated breath basically offers himself to be a father to this young man who is alone. And the young man has already seen the kindness and love and goodness of this man who has tended him during his recuperation and healing. And he's so grateful to have this good man offer to be his family. And the doctor is so happy to have this young man who is a good young man to be his family. And then the author says this, Fortune took it into her head sometimes to lay upon a wound a salve of such value that a man became positively glad of the wound. I'm going to read that again. Fortune took it into her head sometimes to lay upon a wound a salve of such value that a man became positively glad of the wound. That is the law of compensation, brothers and sisters, and it's not fortune. It's our Heavenly Father who makes this promise, this unbreakable promise to his saints that he will lay upon our wounds a salve of such value that we will be positively glad of the wound. I believe that with all my heart. Whatever unfairness, whatever injustice we have suffered in this life will be made right through the atonement of Christ. If we search, pray, walk uprightly, and remember our covenants, we will see that all things will work together for our good, not just for our survival, but for our blessing, for our good. Another statement by Neil Maxwell that I think pertains to this from a speech called Endure It Well in April 1990, we find that sorrow can actually enlarge the mind and heart in order to give place 
expanded space for later joy. I remember hearing this in general conference and, and having my mind kind of click on this and think, is that how it works? That must be how it works. You know, when we're happy, it's a wonderful thing to experience happiness, but it doesn't really stretch us. But heartbreak stretches us. It's like we can't believe how much we can feel, how much pain and sorrow we can, are capable of experiencing and continue to breathe and continue to, to function. So it, it stretches us to feel all of that pain. And the stretching is just preparatory to the joy that God will replace our sorrows with. He will give us this compensatory joy for all the wounds that we have experienced, all the heartbreak, all the suffering, all the unfairness of life will be replaced with joy. And our hearts will have enlarged in that process. Suffering is a part of the plan. And this is one of the beautiful parts of it. I love this statement of Paul's in 2 Corinthians that I think, again, speaks to this, that if we understand the promises of God and trust in them, then we too could say with Paul, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Look at that beautiful juxtaposition. We go through life's troubles, but if we understand the promises to come, that God will make everything fair, everything right, then we can be troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. We can say the same thing with Paul. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. Elder Holland puts it beautifully in his speech, a high priest of good things to come from October 1999. Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come Finally, this beautiful verse from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is the Savior speaking to us. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all that mourn, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. What an incredible image that is, to give us beauty for ashes. So another little story. I have on my desk a paperweight and it's a pretty simple paperweight. It doesn't have anything inside the glass, but it's iridescent and shiny and, you know, has some beautiful iridescent colors on it. But what it means to me is something lovely because I bought that at Ghirardelli Square decades ago. Chris and I were visiting San Francisco and we were doing some touristy things in Ghirardelli Square and they had lots of shops there, as you may know with tourist stuff in there. And one of the shops was a glass shop and it had all kinds of beautiful things made of glass. And, you know, we were on a pretty tight budget back in the day, so we didn't usually go out and buy lots of really pretty things when we were being tourists. But there was a wall in that shop that had several glass items with the sign explaining that these objects had been made from ash from the Mount St. Helens eruption that had been just a year or so before. So maybe you remember that Mount St. Helens erupted and it dropped tons, literally tons of volcanic ash all over the Northwest, there were pictures that showed like cars and houses and things that looked like there was a foot or two of snow on everything. And they had to shovel, you know, to get the ash, you know, taken care of and cleaned up. 
it took quite an effort to do that because there was so much volcanic ash. So somebody had had the brilliant idea of taking some of this ash, as you know, we know, which is used in the process of creating glass, and had used Mount St. Helens ash to create these beautiful objects. And there was a paperweight there. I think it cost about 30 bucks or so. And I went to Chris and I said, is it okay if I buy that? Because I, I want to have this this beautiful memento or, you know, souvenir that reminds me of God's promise that he will give us beauty for ashes. So, I mean, I don't need a paperweight to remind me of that. But I do have this little souvenir paperweight that sits on my desk. And every time I see it, I mean, my, my family came to call it the Isaiah paperweight because they all knew that it represented to me that memory of that wonderful promise that Christ has come to comfort all of us who mourn, to give unto us beauty for ashes, and the oil of joy for mourning. Brothers and sisters, this is the great blessing of being a Zion people. We qualify for all these great blessings. As I mentioned last time, the reason that I call this podcast Choosing Glory is because every day we choose which glory we want to live in by living celestial law or terrestrial or telestial. I hope that as we participate in the building of Zion in these last days to greet the Savior, that we will reach for that celestial law, that we will choose glory every day of our lives. I do want to mention again that we do have now hard copies of Choosing Glory available, the book that I wrote many years ago on this topic. If any of you are interested, please Venmo me at my account being at L-I-L-I hyphen Anderson, S-O-N, at Lily hyphen Anderson. And you can just Venmo me. The cost of the book right now, we're giving a discount, is $18. And Priority mail shipping and handling will add another $9 to that. So the total cost will be $27. If you would like to buy a copy of that book, just Venmo me your name and address in the subject line and we'll get it out to you right away. Take care.